Hey everyone, welcome to the Julia LaRose Show. I'm really excited to bring to you this conversation with someone I really enjoy talking to, and that is Jerry Parsky. He was the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury from 1974 until 1977. So we'll definitely want to get his take on what's happening today and how it compares to that time period. He's also a pioneer in private equity. He is the founder and chairman of Aurora Capital Partners. So we'll get his take on the state of the private equity markets. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Jerry Parsky, founder of Aurora Capital, partner at Endurance Partners, and former assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury. I am so excited to bring you on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Glad to talk to you about subjects that are on your mind. You know, I always feel like I learned something from you and it just takes me back to like our first conversation. I want to say that was probably September of 2019 when you and I first met. I was 31 years old at the time and I learned that you were in, um, you were at the treasury then as assistant secretary of the U.S. treasury at age 31, the same age. And that just really took me aback. And I know um, you certainly have a lot to offer the folks who are listening, especially being so young in public service. So I guess my first question for you, Jerry, is um, how did that kind of come about um, being so young and uh, going into public service? Take me back to your maybe the earliest parts of your career, like how this happened. Well, um, the overall theme uh, that I hope um, we can touch on a little bit is that I, I believe very strongly in mentorship. And uh, I think that uh, uh, when you're a young person, the older generation can provide you with appropriate guidance if you're open and willing. That certainly happened to me. Um, I, uh, I was uh, went to law school and um, began my professional career um, practicing law at a, at a law firm in New York. And out of the blue, I was called by mentor number one in my, uh, in my uh, adult life. I'll talk a little bit about mentorship in my young life, if you wish. But adult life was a former professor of mine from University of Virginia Law School, Edwin Cohen, who in 1971 was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for tax policy. I didn't know anything about, about the government service. Uh, I was not a politician. Uh, I, I was uh, independent uh, registered. But he called me uh, and said that he had need for an assistant for what would be one year. Uh, and if, was I willing to come down to Washington? And because I was open, uh, to his guidance and believed in him, I said, okay. So at age 28, 29, in 1971, uh, I joined the Treasury Department on what was referred to as the Tax Legislative Council staff, which reported to um, uh, Edwin Cohen. And uh, uh, to, to kind of touch on what can happen if you're open to um, mentorship. Um, as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, he uh, and the other Assistant Secretaries met with the, the then Secretary of the Treasury starting in 1972, uh, George Schultz. And uh, Secretary Schultz, uh, who became an extremely close friend of mine and, and mentor. He, I didn't know him at all, but um, each day he met with his assistant secretaries. And then on usually on Fridays or Saturdays, all the assistant secretaries were allowed to bring one or two aides. One of these in the, in the uh, spring of 72, I was one of those aides. Secretary Schultz went around the table he uh, came to Ed Cohen and said, Ed, George McGovern is running against President Nixon and he has some economic and tax proposals and I'd like somebody to look at them. Um, my, unfortunately, my professor has passed away as has George Schultz. Um, but um, if he were here, my professor would say, among other things, I don't know why I said what I did. But he pipes up, I think Jerry Parsky ought to do that. And 
uh, I think my recollection's right, Secretary Schultz said, who's he? And I, uh, uh, I turned, I was three rows back uh, and I turned red. But as a result of that, I did a lot of work for Schultz and that planted the seeds for me to stay in the Treasury Department and, um, uh, and work for him as uh, 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 during the 1973-74 period uh, when the Arab oil embargo took place in 1973, I was asked to help uh, create the Federal Energy Office to deal with the embargo. And then I was in 1974 when I uh, was, when the embargo was lifted, uh, Secretary Schultz came into my office and said, um, we're gonna nominate you to be Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and I was then 31 years old and couldn't believe this would happen, but it did. And so you, you were that's the, how I got to be assistant secretary. You were the youngest to ever have that role. I don't know if it's it's been broken at this point, but at that time, you were the youngest person to have that that sort of position at age 31. That's remarkable. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm not a big believer in uh, records lasting forever. I'm sure there have been younger assistant secretaries I don't know that for sure, but at the time, you're right, that that was the case. And it was because um, an older generation believed in me and and uh, believed in the younger generation. And uh, that's an important lesson learned, I think, for young people today. Mm -hmm. I, I will dig in on that later in this conversation and um, also just the dynamics that were happening. What an interesting time in history, too, to be in that position. But um, you talked about kind of opening yourself up to mentorship. And I just want to kind of think about this and explore this further with you, because it was a professor in law school who gave you the call that probably changed your life um, when you were working as a Wall Street attorney at the time. Um, how does one open themselves up? Because I would even think, you know, maybe it's in college, maybe it's in graduate school or their first internship. How do you make yourself available um, and open to mentorship? Do you seek it? Um, just would love to explore that with you, Jerry. Um, I think you have to be a little bit cautious about seeking it. Um, I happen to believe that the most important decision ones one makes in life are people's decisions. And um, you need to be open uh, if someone older, more experienced reaches out to you. I think there are some challenges today for the younger generation because of, in part, because of the gap that exists uh, between knowledge that they may have of technology and knowledge that the older generation, but if you remain open and, 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 and passive and observe uh, 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 someone who reaches out, I, uh, I knew my professor and really respected him. I got to know George Schultz and really respected him. If you believe in, in the principles they advocate, and they reach out to you, then uh, it's important to be a receptive mentee, if you will. Today, I worry about young people basically rejecting the older generation. Maybe that's because I'm certainly part of that older generation on the basis of technology. I mean, I can I could, you know, hear some of the young people say, well, what do I need to call or talk with this um, 70-year-old or 80-year-old uh, when he or she has trouble getting on Google. That's a little bit of exaggeration, but, um, uh, but it's not that that mentorship is all about. Mentorship is about life lessons and, and how, to, how to go about creating respect for others and have others respect you because you uh, respect their points of view and life lessons that, that you can learn uh, in the process. One of the, one of the main lessons about government, it's the reason I haven't returned, but, uh, but I learned, um, I'm, I think, you know, uh, because, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm quite a competitive person. I played sports and, and, and there, but I don't like getting ahead 
by pulling anyone else down. Unfortunately, Washington and government service at times, that's what it's all about. And so if you sense that there's an environment that runs counter to your basic principles, that's guidance that uh, someone like George Schultz gave to me or Ed Cohen gave to me and or my father gave to me. Um, and so it's, um, as I said, it's an important um, lesson learned. And I worry today about the younger generation being angry at what's going on. Uh, and as a result, not wanting to listen to an older generation or look at history uh, as a guide to what sh one should do or shouldn't do. Well, I can say I've certainly learned a lot in our conversations, and I'm grateful that you and I have been able to connect uh, since meeting just a couple of years ago. And it is an important point um, to just sit down and have a great conversation with someone. Um, you're talking about this idea of learning, and um, that's one of the one reasons I wanted to bring you on here is let's go back to the time when you were at the Treasury um, it was 1970, I think it was 1971 when, is that what you said when you first started? You got the, you became assistant treasury secretary in 74. Let's talk about right. what was happening um, domestically and then we can kind of expand that out globally. But um, we're, we're kind of, that's kind of the period of time where you're starting to lead up into inflation, the oil crisis at the time. Take us back, take the listeners back and the viewers back into what was happening then. Well, throughout this period, there, there was a, a lot of uh, uh, growing political turmoil because of the Watergate situation. Um, and there was the, the seeds of economic turmoil also as a result of the Arab oil embargo and the impact that higher oil prices and uh, gasoline lines would have. To some extent, some parallels to what's, what's happening today and what may happen today. But coming out of um, the 74, five and six period after the oil embargo, um, uh, the, the, you know, there was a significant downturn in the economy. And we in the Ford administration tried to get the Congress to enact um, a pro-growth, uh, uh, balanced budget uh, policies that were not adopted. And it planted the seeds as a result for the period during President Carter's administration, uh, where at least certainly for the last two years, um, there are some parallels uh, today. Um, th there, there was, you know, um, very strong inflationary pressures, and yet at the same time, um, economic growth was curtailed. Uh, the word stagflation was a common word during the uh, period of, uh, from 1977 going, leading up to 1980. Um, what brought us out, and I was not there during that period, it was uh, the Carter administration, I, I had, I left uh, along with um, many of my colleagues as a change of administration. But, um, uh, but the interest rates in 78 and 79 uh, had to, uh, had to be raised significantly in order to uh, address inflation. The mistake was uh, in part um, uh, during the Carter administration was monetary policy uh, as well as fiscal policy has to work together to address uh, inflationary pressures. And if you have too much stimulus coming out of fiscal and monetary policies, um, interest rates alone are, are not going to resolve the problem. Um, just to kind of complete that thought, when um, as a result of uh, the economic situation, as well as um, some of the foreign policy issues around um, Iran and, and the hostage situation, President Reagan 
and uh, came in, in obviously in 1980. And what they did, uh, I think, offers in part uh, a, a signal of what I think should be thought of going forward by President Biden's administration and, and, uh, uh, and the Congress. Namely, the recognizing that the cause of this inflation is both fiscal and monetary stimulus, overstimulus. What, what's needed, um, as shown by the Reagan administration, and I'm not saying that everything that was done should be repeated, but the notion that, that you uh, get control of monetary policy and provide a, a uh, stimulus in the form of reducing tax impact, taxes, I think ought to really be carefully thought through. This notion of another stimulus package and tax increases I think is exactly the wrong approach uh, that, that would, should be taken, and it may result um, in a change of administrations the way it did in the late 70s. But we learned, Paul Volcker, who I worked with in the Treasury Department, became head of the Fed, and, and he certainly um, increased interest rates, but the fact, uh, he, he really let interest rates take its normal course in addition to uh, increasing them. Um, and, and then on top of that, President Reagan brought in uh, tax reduction. So you had, you had both monetary constraint and, and a supply increase. In, in my friend uh, Arthur Laffer's view or comment recently, you know, he said too, too much money chasing too few goods is what causes inflation. And I think he's right about that. There can be different approaches to addressing the problem. But the 70s and, uh, and the beginning of the 80s are a history lesson. Um, and uh, we don't have an Arab oil embargo. Unfortunately, we have a war in Ukraine and we have covid and we have a, a, uh, a continuous push for more and more spending. Um, and that's a dangerous course, I think, history teaches us. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there um, and how some of these things might play out and just pointing out that we're on a dangerous course. Do you think that, is it too late? Is it possible for us to get our house in order here? Um, or is this kind of going to be inevitable? What do you think? I, I, I don't think anything negative is inevitable. Uh, I think that there are many smart people um, involved and around. I, I, I'm worried about the political situation that exists today. There was somewhat of, the, of a political turmoil, obviously, in the 70s with what happened with Watergate, the resignation of a president. Um, uh, but, but there are smart people uh, uh, that, that are, that are in, in place. I do think there needs to be a change of course. We cannot continue to solve the problem by having, uh, or issues that, that need to be solved. Um, but we, we, we have to have a certain basic set of principles. I'll, I'll tell you a, 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 an interesting story about President Reagan, who, um, uh, who I thought very highly of. Um, uh, another one of my mentors as I left the Treasury was a gentleman by the name of William French Smith, who was a senior partner in a great law firm called Gibson Dunn Crutcher. And I joined as a partner as a result of um, uh, Bill Smith. Anyway, and when the Reagan, and he became attorney general under President Reagan. And when he came back, he said to me, uh, Jerry, we're gonna create a, a, a foundation uh, to build a library for President Reagan. And, and we're putting together trustees. 
I'd like you to be a trustee. And I said, well, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not really sure, but I, I trusted him. He said, well, go ahead and um, meet with President Reagan. He has an office in Century City. So I did. I went over and I, I had met him because I served on a commission for President Reagan on productivity. Um, in any event, we sat down and uh, his first comment to me uh, was, thank you very much, Jerry, for agreeing to be a trustee. I laughed at that, but that was in part, how, how can you say no to President Reagan exactly. when he approaches you that way? But more importantly, he then had a little card that he had in his pocket. Now, this may be right out of um, uh, the movie industry. I don't know. But um, he pulled the, uh, pulled the card out of his pocket, held it up and said, I just want you to know that I've always had uh, a card like this. And there are three or four things that are very important. They were very important to me, to him in, in the government. I believe in a balanced budget. I believe in a strong military. I believe in, in um, uh, uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy that is going to grow the economy, lower, lower tax rates, but at the same time, fairness. Um, and he, he went down the list. He said four or five things. Everything else is open to reasonable compromise with, co with quality people who have good ideas. We need that today. We don't have it. Unfortunately, um, uh, today we have the microphone, if you will, in the hands of the extremes extreme right or extreme left. Most of the country is slightly right of center or slightly left of center. So you can't adopt economic policy to address this high inflation and grow the economy and do what happened in, by 1982. When President Reagan came in, Paul Volcker continued to raise interest rates and let interest rates go up, but tax uh, reduction also stimulated supply, and, and they got that through. Whether it's the Biden administrations and the Democratic uh, majority staying in place or the Republicans taking over, you need moderation and you need people willing to compromise on good ideas, not their basic principles, but on good ideas. I'm worried that we don't have that today because people of that caliber are not willing to participate in our political process. And we need to stimulate young people to get involved. Yeah, maybe, I don't, I don't, it's, it's, it makes you wonder like why, why do you think they, they, they haven't, um, I mean, just wondering, like, why, why is it you think they, we don't see many involved? Well, um, if, uh, uh, if you came to me four or five, six years ago, 10 years ago, and you said you wanted to run for office, um, anyhow, governor of California, uh, I would say to you, well, I'll bring one or two consultants who work in this political area and you can talk to them. And I bring one or two. And the first consultant might say to you, if you are not prepared to go negative on your opponent personally, then don't run. And the second uh, consultant might say the first thing he or she was going to do was opposition research on you because um, you and your family are going to be roundly personally criticized. Uh, and so you, in all likelihood, would turn to me and say, what do I need this for? I'm willing to have my views, my opinions challenged. But we've evolved into a political system that is dominated by personal attacks. That is something that as a result, the quality of the people that are willing to participate has been on a decline. Now, we've got some good people 
they just uh, they just uh, they they are attacked and so they attack and and you have to cut through the personal attacks and and uh, address what does the person man or woman stand for from a policy standpoint um, I I still serve uh, with honor at uh, the uh, Reagan Foundation, a wonderful library, and the trustees uh, decided to take a chapter out of the uh, president, one of President Reagan's speeches called A Time for Choosing, and do a series of speeches uh, oriented around Republican candidates, but a series of speeches uh, about, about what, what to do about this time. And the vast majority of the message was, it's a time for choosing policy and walking away from personal attacks. Um, and, and politicians that are only engaged or want to be engaged day after day in personal attacks can and should be rejected by the voters. Um, and, and at least that's my observations today for young people. It is a good observation. It's it's certainly an interesting one because we can all probably think of examples where we've seen this play out, um, especially as you get into election seasons. Um, just to kind of bring it back to our current um, economic picture, I guess at the time of us recording this conversation, um, we have not gotten Q2 GDP data, but we did get, um, I'm just saying most recent economic data at the time of the recording here, um, the latest inflation print um, for the month of June, the CPI was 9.1%. It's the highest, I guess it's like, it's a 40 year high at this point, inflation here. So um, it's a topic that keeps coming up in certain polls and surveys. It's certainly um, the talk of a lot of dinner tables these days. I know I've certainly talked to my family about it. I feel like others probably have as well. Um, how do you think about the current picture when it comes to inflation and then maybe even comparing that? We were talking earlier about parallels to what played out in the 1970s. I've heard my parents bring it up. I've heard them talk about the lines, the even odd days for getting gasoline, things like that. I obviously was not there at the time, but would love for you to kind of compare the situations that we're seeing play out now to then. Well, the current um, situation that you accurately described, uh, simpli a little bit simplistically, but the underlying basic cause of inflation is a combined fiscal and monetary stimulus. The stimulus there, uh, a trillion dollars of stimulus that was supposed to be for infrastructure, um, but it, it was a, uh, a stimulus. It's, it's um, uh, as I mentioned, I, I, I think that, that um, you, need, you need to combine um, addressing that um, that, inf that that rising inflation with a combination of interest rates and policies that will stimulate growth. That's what happened. Uh, that's what got us out of the '70s with the Reagan administration. And I'm not just here talking about only Republicans. I mean, um, Republicans, Democrats uh, changed their orientation from year to year. We'll talk a little bit about. You know, who were the Democrats going back to the uh, the 60s? Uh, President Kennedy would cut taxes in the, in, the, in the 60s. President Reagan cut taxes in the 80s. So it's, it's not uh, confined just to one political party or the other. But today, uh, what's on the table, now the, the, uh, a number of politicians want to do more stimulus, and raise taxes. Uh, the combination of things, I would say, uh, are uh, would take us in the wrong direction. It, it would exacerbate the problem of uh, of inflation. Um, uh, again, the the Federal Reserve uh, with monetary policy stimulated helped stimulate uh, uh, the inflationary pressure by 
um, basically financing the the, uh, the the stimulus that was adopted. So I'm hopeful that this proposed next bill that would create another trillion or more of spending won't pass. Um, that's not to say that I disagree with some of the policies that are being advocated. For instance, uh, some of the policies oriented around uh, uh, climate change. I, I'm in favor. I happen to believe in my, my, my mentor, one of them, George Schultz, wrote an op-ed piece before he passed away that I, I would certainly endorse on climate change, and that was to uh, adopt a carbon tax. I would advocate a carbon tax if you want to address climate change. I wouldn't advocate just increasing spending uh, there, but I would, I would, I would increase uh, 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 a carbon tax, and I would offset it, however, with tax reductions on both the personal and other taxes. So it was a balance uh, there, but you'd have money to spend on what what is a good, sensible policy addressing climate change. What's being proposed is just more spending, exacerbating the the uh, inflationary push um, in the interest of addressing climate change. I think that's the wrong balance today. And we learned, we learned it was the wrong balance, not necessarily on climate change, but on other policies uh, uh, in the in the 70s. And it took um, it took very sharp interest rates. I mean, inflation in the 70s is, was greater than what you just described exists today, significantly greater. And interest rates had to be, move up to 15 to 20 percent uh, on the natural. So I think we, I, 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 again, I, I, I talk to um, young people uh, as much as I can, and I'm uh, including my children and grandchildren, but um, uh, who, who I think listen, which makes me feel good. I don't know whether they're, they're going to act on it, but they listen. Um, and my view is history can teach us something if uh, if we don't repeat the mistakes. That's a good point too. What what was it like when they had the rate hikes? What what did that feel like from like a typical consumer's perspective? Maybe someone trying to buy a home or something like. What was that like? That period of time. It 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 was every bit as troublesome and and harmful. I mean the again the gasoline lines that existed as a result of the uh, oil embargo and the sharp increase in price. Fast forward now, pulling up to the gas station and paying six to $6.50 a gallon uh, is painful. It, 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 um, and, and people feel it. And that's the reason I think that uh, a number of people want change. They don't want the policies in place that the, that the government is now advocating um, because it, it's not selling. Inflation, in my mind, we used to have the expression in the 70s, inflation is, a, is another form of tax. High interest rates, another form of tax. You don't want to couple it with tax increases on top of that. Yeah, I mean, like triple tax there. Um, you mentioned just the long gas lines, the oil embargo. So when George Schultz, I guess, um, he tapped you to be an assistant treasury, assistant treasury secretary. I'm just looking at the notes here. Assistant treasury secretary um, and to open the federal energy office. So I'm just looking at the timeline. That would have been probably 74 when you were, when, was that right? Well, uh, two, two separate things. Um, he asked me uh, to, uh, in 1973, okay. when the oil embargo took place, uh, there, uh, what he asked me to do is to help William Simon 
who became uh, uh, in charge of oil policy for the government, helped set up an office to deal with that embargo. We didn't have a Department of Energy. No one ever thought of that. Uh, we didn't have a uh, uh, energy administration. So we created in 1973 the Federal Energy Office. It was done by executive order. President Nixon uh, created that office. And I shifted from the Treasury Department temporarily to help um, staff that office to deal with the embargo. As a result of that, I got very educated in terms of oil policy and, uh, you know, with the embargo taking place and the price of oil being arbitrarily moved. We, we adopted um, a policy, uh, I think President Nixon gave a speech on the uh, need for energy independence um, because we were dependent at that time and got, could get hurt by that embargo. Just as an aside, we uh, we achieved that independence by by not curtailing uh, uh, appropriate oil and gas development. And uh, during the previous administration, the Trump administration, that independence was created. Unfortunately, some of the regulatory environment and the desire on the part of this current administration to do away with the fossil fuel industry uh, quickly um, uh, has, has resulted in us becoming more dependent. But my point is that Federal Energy Office was established in, I think, uh, October, December of 1973. The Arab oil embargo was lifted in April of 1974. And then I returned uh, to the Treasury Department, initially going to leave. Um, uh, but the Federal Energy Office then became the Federal Energy Administration. And then during President Carter's time, became a, 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 a cabinet level uh, position. So. I was involved from uh, 1973 until April of 74. In April of 74, after the bar was lifted, I was going to leave and President Schultz came into my office and said, you're not leaving, we, we're gonna make, we're gonna nominate you, um, or President Nixon was gonna nominate me to be Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. That did happen. And as a result from 1974, until through 1976, I served in that capacity. And as a result of the work I had done on energy, energy policy came under um, that assistant secretary. And I traveled lots of the Middle East because Secretary uh, Henry Kissinger believed very strongly in interdependence with the countries around the world, especially the oil producing countries. And so we set up a series of uh, commissions with Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, and Iran um, to provide technical assistance in exchange, which, which they covered by way of cost, but it was a way of becoming more interdependent so that uh, something like the embargo uh, could be curtailed in the future. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine what your work was like um, during that time. I feel like that was it was an interesting, dynamic time uh, to be in that role, especially um, surrounding things involving energy. Uh, do you have any sort of parallels from the work that you were doing then to like kind of what's happening now? Anything that you want to draw out, draw out further? Well, I'm very worried about what I would refer to as the precipitous uh, moves to do away with uh, the uh, fossil fuel uh, industry and especially to curtail from a regulatory standpoint, uh, the oil and gas industry. I recognize, as I said, the need for sensitivity to climate change. Uh, we have plenty of natural gas and plenty of clean natural gas. I, I worry that 
we are acting pr prematurely uh, and, and putting us in a very dangerous position. In part, you can see the impact. I mean, energy is a central ingredient and has been historically, but a central ingredient in our economy. And we, um, by, uh, by regulation and, pol and policy, um, are driving or helping to drive the cost higher and higher and limiting the supply. That, that is helping to fuel this inflation as it did caused by the oil embargo and the, and the precipitous rise in the price of oil in the 70s. Um, similar impact, we, we can learn from that history. And that's not to say that we shouldn't um, uh, invest in and promote um, alternative sources of energy. We should, but it's going to take time. Uh, and and um, sources of energy like wind and solar and others are really important, but they're a relatively small percentage and can be a small percentage of our overall energy policy in the short term. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize until I was just doing more reading lately of like how much... Um the, you know, fossil fuels are pretty much part of everything. It's from like the fertilizer to the, the like different kinds of packaging, medical equipment. It's not, it's not just the fuel that's in your gas tank. It's so many different parts of the economy, including like the grid, so many uh, different aspects. Um, so I, I guess I want to transition a little bit here, Jerry, um, from moving out of public service back into the private sector and some of your work there. Um, I guess more recently, private equity. Uh, talk to me a bit about um, some of the work that you're doing now, or even from the time, I guess there's a big period of time there, but some of the work you've, you have been doing in the private sector. Well, um, I, I believe in service. Uh, I was benefited tremendously uh, by the government experience that I had and the mentorship I had. And so uh, I advocate to young people, think in terms of how you can serve uh, and you can finish the sentence. It can be serve your country. It can be serve your, your state. It can be serve your community. It can be serve your, your, your uh, uh, neighborhood. But uh, so create a, a balance between that and, uh, and, and uh, what you're doing uh, from a professional profit-oriented standpoint. Um, uh, when I left the Treasury Department, again, thanks to uh, George Schultz, I went to see him. Um, uh, it might have been natural for me to go to the banking world because that was uh, what I had done in the Treasury Department. But as I think I mentioned, I... Uh, I was very troubled by the fact that in government, uh, often people try to get ahead by pulling other people down. And I don't believe in that. And I thought, I think incorrectly, but I thought that the banking world or, uh, might have some of the same elements. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And I went, I went to see George Schultz and the message I would have for, to young people, there will be times when you don't know what to do. Turn to your parents. Turn to your God, to, to uh, someone that's got you. It may, it may be a coach. It, it may be a teacher. It may be someone that you've come across. They can be helpful, and you can talk through choices. I went to see George Schultz, and um, he's, uh, he said, okay, if you feel this way, if you were going to go back to being a lawyer, what would you do? And I, uh, and this was in 1977, early. And I, I said, well, I, then I thought that you could build a law practice around the movement of capital. U U.S. businesses going abroad and foreign capital coming into the U.S. He thought that was a good idea. He said, well, what law firm do you have? I said, I don't have a law firm. He said, well, I know a guy who I think you'll get along with. 
you believe in this mentorship idea, uh, I think he will. His name is William French Smith. He happens to be Ronald Reagan's lawyer. Now, this was 1976. This was not 1980 or 1977, beginning. Um, and I said, well, I don't know him. He said, you go back to Washington. Uh, um, I was, I went to see uh, Secretary Schultz uh, at his home on the Stanford campus. Go back to Washington. I think you'll get a call. I landed in Washington and I got a call from William French Smith and he said, we, we need someone at Gibson Dunn to help us increase our international activity and, and open uh, help us open offices. And so between 1976 uh, or 1977 and 1980, that's what I did under the guidance of William French Smith. Um, and the work that I did um, was um, as much a guide to those investing capital as it was legal draftsmanship. Um, and we and and so it resulted, uh, and I did that throughout the 80s. Uh, but at each stage, I wanted to be involved in something nonprofit, something where I could say uh, I, I was giving back to a, a society that had been very good to me. And it's what my father and mother instilled in me, uh, that it was very important to to look for ways of that. That resulted in um, my being appointed uh, trustee of the college I went to, Princeton University, and then um, um, uh, in the 90s being appointed to a regent for the University of California and ultimately had the honor of chairing the regents. That activity in higher education was very important to me throughout the career. But I decided in 1990 that rather than be a lawyer looking at the movement of capital, there, there's a way in which private equity was taking hold. And I believed in, you know, um, uh, acquiring and growing companies. And so uh, I uh, helped found um, uh, Aurora Capital Partners as a middle market private equity firm and we would buy businesses reasonably, grow them, and sell them. I'm very worried today about where private equity is. Not that there aren't good people involved, very smart um, uh, people, but the prices that are being paid for companies, I think, have gotten out of control. And the consequence of that, I think, might be for a variety of private equity firms not to be able to deliver the kind of returns that are expected from those investors that are providing capital. And um, that's one of the reasons that I helped start um, uh, Endurance Partners, which is a, uh, a, a firm uh, uh, that is looking to buy two or three companies not have a series of funds, but two or three companies and grow them for 10 years and not be forced to sell in three or four years and not pay an extraordinary price because you're partnering with management, letting management own a significant stake in the company. In it for the longer that, term. Yeah. Yeah. For the long term. Let me that ask you on um, about the prices or valuations. Do you think that's going to come down at some point? Do you think things just got a little too frothy? I know venture capital for a while, there's like kind of crazy valuations out there. Um, and things have, are starting to shift in venture capital. I know it's different from private equity, but just want to hear from you about valuations if you think those will come down. I, I think whenever excess is, uh, becomes part of the equation, uh, there's a there's an adjustment. There's an alignment. I think that uh, during parts of the 90s and, uh, and maybe at the beginning, there was too much leverage uh, that was put on. I mean, people in, in effect, uh, um, some private equity firms didn't have any capital at risk in, in any of the acquisitions. That was not a healthy environment. Today, companies 
um, in uh, that that uh, used to be acquired in in the language of private equity for eight nine times EBITDA are being bought for 13, 14, 15 or more times EBITDA. Um, and, and, and in part, that's because there's so much money that is being allocated from uh, institutional and, uh, and individual, but institutional investors to private equity that, that the money is, is uh, too much money is chasing these companies. What's going to result, I think, um, is that in three, four, or five years, which is the time frame that um, the current private equity arena uh, looks to realize on it, I'm not quite sure these multiples will hold. And if they don't hold, and you haven't made acquisitions by these companies at much lower multiples, then I think you're going to have to, a tough time generating the kind of returns that are advocated. It used to be that private equity, um, you know, would say we can deliver over a three, four or five year period, a return for our investors of 15 to 20 or net 20% IRR. If, if, um, if these uh, prices result not in that, but in returns of eight, nine, 10% net returns for some. I think investors are gonna say, well, wait a minute now, why am I tying my money up? Um, why am I not getting a premium to the public equity markets? I could buy an S&P 500 index maybe and get seven or 8% over X period of time. Um, they may not get it over the next 10 years, given given the, the distortion that's taken place there too. But my point is, we are in a heated environment for private equity. And I think there's gonna be an adjustment. There will be premium firms that will be able to work their way through this. But I just think there's too much money. I, I think I saw a statistic last year that said there was $900 billion allocated to private equity firms across the board, uninvested. Uh, and that's a dangerous situation, I think, for returns. Wow. That's a big number. Um, Jerry, you and I have also, in our conversations in the past, we've talked about California, which is where you're based, um, mentioned some of the work you have done in California. And the last time, or I guess it was the first time we spoke, you talked about storm clouds, if you will, in California, um, specifically uh, the pensions, worries there. We've kind of seen in the pandemic a, an exodus. I'm here in Miami. There are lots of folks who've moved in uh, from the Bay Area. Uh, what, are you, what are you seeing in California? Like, what, How do you kind of assess the situation there? Are you even more worried than you were a few years ago? Yes, I'm, I'm more worried than I was two years ago. Um, we, uh, we created, uh, or the governor, Governor Schwarzenegger, and the legislature created two commissions, uh, one in 2007 and one in 2009, to address what I think are the two um, most important issues creating a cloud around the future of California. One was on public employee benefits and the unfunded liabilities that have been created uh, for healthcare and retirement. And by unfunded liabilities, uh, um, I mean, uh, these are promises or benefits that have been created for public employees. And I'm a big believer in public employees. But if you're going to create benefits for them, then you got to be sure you have the wherewithal to pay for those benefits when they become due. The concept of unfunded benefits is a mystery to me. Uh, I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think anyone would run their own personal budget around unfunded liabilities. But that's the way the state runs its budget. 
It doesn't identify these. We did a study on just healthcare in uh, 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 2007, 2008, and and uh, I uh, and came up with an analysis that showed that the unfunded healthcare liabilities for public employees throughout the, the, the state government, not not just for the state, but cities, communities, was over a hundred and about 118 to 120 billion then, um, uh, just for healthcare. Um, and, and for the state, reflective uh, uh, for CalPERS, CalSTRS, and the University of California, probably 70 or 80 billion. That's grown now uh, to uh, over 100 billion. Uh, uh, for for the, uh, the state. And, and when you take everything into account, it may be even more. We came up with one simple policy, and that was pre-fund these obligations. Uh, if you're going to create them, we're not asking you, even though some economists may think that we should go from a defined benefit plan, which exists today, to a defined contribution plan like many corporations, uh, we didn't advocate that because, frankly, we thought the commission would be deadlocked. But pre-funding was supported by the entire commission, seven Democrats, seven Republicans. Nothing has been done. Some has been done for, uh, going forward in the future, but, the, but the, this $120 billion, which is growing, wasn't addressed. Uh, so unfunded liabilities for public employees are going to become due. Um, I, I went and testified and talked to a number of legislators. One common question came, well, Jerry, um, when are these liabilities gonna become due? And I said, well, it's gonna take maybe between 12 and 14 years. Unfortunately, the comments, some of the comments back were, well, you know where we'll be? There will be gone. We gotta to address today's problems. That's, they're not thinking long-term, they need to. Um, and that's a, a cloud that will hover around us. The second cloud is the over-dependence of the state on the personal income tax, which as everyone knows, is a separate tax imposed by the state of California on personal income tax. And, and we created another commission uh, uh, on tax reform. And, and came forward with, again, a, a majority recommendation to lower the tax rates, lower the dependence on the personal income take, tax, and broaden the base on the sales tax or the equivalent. We used to be a state of manufacturing, and, and the sales tax applies to goods. We are now a state with many corporations leaving. We are now a state of service and the sales tax doesn't apply. You could broaden the tax base by extending the sales tax or doing the equivalent of a value added tax that might be le less progressive, but would be balanced. Right now, less than 1% and getting smaller of the, of the taxpayers are accounting for more than 50% of the revenues that's not manageable. Um, uh, the current administration is advocating, well, we have a hundred billion um, um, budget surplus. In, in one recession over a two year period, that, that uh, surplus, some of which was generated by taxes, some of which was generated by federal government allocation will be wiped out. We are totally dependent or too dependent on the most volatile form of tax. These two issues, public pension reform and tax reform, need to be addressed by California or California down the road for our children and grandchildren will, ha will uh, have very serious economic problems. Well, we certainly covered um, a lot in this discussion, Jerry, so many uh, different aspects of your own career and your parallels that you see and advice that you have. Um, so I thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Um, thank you.
I appreciate it very much. I feel very fortunate. Um, and uh, at this at this time, uh, you think about you know the people that have really helped you, and I've certainly been helped. And if I can ha have a helping hand out to the next generation, uh, I'm certainly involved. Um, uh, with my children and grandchildren, but beyond that, I hope I can. Thank you so much, Jerry Parsky. Really appreciate you. Not at all. Good to talk to you.